One of the docs just told me I needed a heart transplant. You know, I'd consider myself super healthy, like I'd climb out Fuji sort of 12 months prior, and it's kind of the last thing you expect, really. I basically just wasted away, looking at yourself transition from, you know, a sort of a healthy young guy to something that you just don't even recognise. It was like looking in a mirror and just not knowing who was staring back. And it was, it was just survival mode, you know. I had to challenge myself. The doctors were challenging me. And I would always try and beat what they would ask me to do every time. G'day, this is Living the Dream, a podcast from Gage Roads where you'll hear from people who are all about going after what they love. We'll chat to photographers, musos, surfers, designers, a range of people who are living life their way. This episode, a story that's pretty close to home. Dwight O'Neill sits at the desk across from me at the Gage office. He's our creative manager, a ripper of a guy, and essentially the man behind the look of Gage Roads. But his story stretches far beyond the world of design. Five years ago, Dwight received a heart and lung transplant. Let that sink in for a moment. A pretty rare situation for a healthy 31-year-old guy who's a pretty regular dude who does pretty regular things. I've learned about Dwight's story from chats at our desk, lunch runs and a few late night beers. And for me, his story really is one of resilience, toughness, a bit of luck and ultimately a lot of positivity. Dwight, g'day. Jamie, what's going on? Uh, It's good to hang out with you again. um, What's it feel like to have someone else's heart and lungs inside of you? Wow, heavy heavy question to kick it off. Um, I think for me, the, the word that comes to mind is thankful. It's a situation where a tragic event has happened um, and through that tragic event, a good thing has occurred. And that, in my situation, has been I have been given a second chance at life and have been given somebody else's heart and lungs. Um, so, yeah, just extremely grateful and thankful for um, for my, my donor. Yeah. Um, before this journey kicked off five plus years ago, yeah. what was life like for you? Who were you? What were you about? What did you do? I was a pretty sort of energetic guy. I was, um, you know, immersed in the music scene, um, in the creative scene. I threw art exhibitions. I designed, you know, for a bunch of festivals and, and clubs and club nights and all that sort of stuff. I worked at, you know, a music magazine, so as well as, you know, freelancing. So I had a pretty cool life. Um, traveled a lot you know it was it was pretty cool to be honest yeah so as far as like dudes in their late 20s early 30s goes like you had a pretty pretty cool life but a pretty you know regular one you're you're a healthy dude just going after it yeah exactly I mean like I was just kind of living my life um you know was you know pretty fit traveled a lot yeah basically just a pretty regular guy just living a you know a, a pretty sort of regular life so when did it all start? When did you know that there was something wrong? I guess I'll take it right back to the start. At birth, I was born with a hole in my heart um, and a condition called sardis invertus. Um, I had emergency heart or open heart surgery at two weeks old. I was very sick as a child. Um, was basically kind of you know taken home to you know pass away. Um, what happened was I, you know, survived, obviously, um, got stronger. I ended up having another open heart surgery when I was about two years old. 
Um, and then pretty much, uh, you know, my sort of younger years up until my early teens, um, basically wasn't allowed to run, jump, skip, you know, do anything physical that would uh, increase my heart rate. So I did the opposite. Uh, so <laughs> I started playing basketball, was, you know, training to, uh, you know, join Kobe in the NBA. Um, <laughs> you know, had those giant dreams of being an NBA player. Um and I think what happened was I just, my body adapted and I physically got stronger and kind of just turned into a, a bit of a normal um, normal kid, really. So you beat the doc's recommendation a little bit. So you had this hole in your heart, you had some surgeries, you pushed through that. Yeah. Um, the doctors said, here's all the stuff you won't do, but you managed to find a way to do it and it was life as normal once, once you kind of pushed through those early teens? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I did have annual checkups um but essentially it was it was all positive um didn't have any sort of setbacks you know from the age of sort of five or six upwards your country kid it was the water right just made you stronger it's it's all that rainwater yeah Yeah, 100 (laughs) percent. that's it so so when did things start to kick off with this setback though you know my entire 20s i was completely normal traveled party did all that normal stuff that 20 year olds do it was almost to the point where I forgot that I had been sick as a as a small kid. So probably a little bit naive, but basically, um, yeah, it all kind of kicked off when I, me and my girlfriend slash now wife, uh, were over in Melbourne with some friends. We went um, camping in the Redwood Forest. Uh, highly recommended if you um, get down there. <laughs> um, and basically, it rained. It rained a lot. Uh, so we got soaked. Fast forward a few weeks, I had a pretty nasty cold. Um, couldn't kick it. Was, you know, still coming to work, still doing all those things. Um, and just, it basically just kept getting worse and worse. Um, got sent to the docs a few times. Um, got diagnosed with pneumonia. Over about a six-week period, just started to really deteriorate to the point where... I just I found it I found it hard to breathe. I was coughing a lot. I was completely fatigued, um, and I was starting to get a little bit worried. But again, quite naive, thinking I would just bounce back. You know, playing the tough guy sort of role, and it just it got worse. Um, and then it was a Game of Thrones finale night. Um, we had some friends <laughs> around our house. Um, you know. High stress levels, you know, finale, all that sort of stuff, and I basically just couldn't move. Like I was, I was coughing, I was short of breath, I was fatigued. I could barely keep my eyes open. Um, and you know, once our friends kind of left, I just had a bit of a coughing fit, and yeah, it was, it wasn't good. And my, um, yeah, my wife's like, get in the car, we're going to emergency. Um, and it was it was serious, yeah. So yeah, got in the car, raced down to emergency, got in the doors. By the time I I you know got out of the car, I could I, I could barely walk. Like I was I was not in a good shape. So you'd had this period of a few weeks where things weren't great, but you're just pushing through. You're yeah, like, exactly, oh, I've got yeah. a bit of a flu. I'll push through it. Then that night is when it really hit, and things kind of took a serious turn. Definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah so race to emergency. Um, pretty much went straight into ICU and yeah was told I had a heart failure right so 
Um, Did you even know what that really meant at that stage because of your background or was it still, I mean, I yes, might be okay here? Yes and no. Like, I, I guess I, I, I knew I had pre-existing conditions, um, but, you know, again, I hadn't, I hadn't experienced any kind of health issues in 20 plus years. So, yeah. um, you know, I'd consider myself super healthy. Like I'd, you know, climb out Fuji sort of 12 months prior. I was, you know, I was a pretty healthy sort of 30 year old. Um, and it's kind of the last thing you expect really. Yeah. So you're in hospital and you're told that you've got heart failure. How quickly did things progress from from that point and was there a moment where you thought shit this is this is pretty serious now yeah so i mean going straight to icu that was a that was a little bit of a, a wake-up call it was um, it, yeah you know it's kind of like oh shit like this isn't going to go away it's not a common cold that i can just brush off and you know it's it's pretty serious um and yeah, I sort of spent, I think it was just over a week uh, at that hospital. And during that time, I'd sort of been brought out of ICU to the to the main ward. Um, and it was sort of during that period that one of the docs uh, basically just told me I needed a heart transplant. Wow, that quickly. Yeah, and it was something that I just hadn't really considered, didn't even... You know, it never crossed my mind. Uh, so, yeah, it was a bit of a shock. Definitely hit hard. But at the same time, being a pretty positive dude, I was like, nah, it's cool. Like, I'll beat this. Like, it's it's all good. Like, I won't need a heart transplant. Like, I'll, you know, I'll go home. I'll, you know, I'll get better. It's all good. Um, and that wasn't the case, unfortunately. I, um, I... Yeah, sort of had a, a meeting scheduled with the advanced heart team at Fiona Stanley. Um, and even then, you know, walking into that meeting, that was a couple of weeks later, um, you know, initial consultation, consultation basically, and, you know, super naive, like super, you know, just completely thought I was fine. Uh, I was feeling, you know, slightly better, probably just, you know, completely in my head, but... Um, you know, I'd almost sort of justified to myself that I didn't need a heart transplant and the docs had got it wrong and, um, you know, had this meeting with one of the, the head head heart uh, doctors there and he sort of ran through my symptoms, what was happening and then basically told me my, uh, my bed was ready upstairs. And... You know, I didn't have clothes. I didn't have toothbrush. I did. I had no idea I was going straight into the ward. Um, so yeah, I had to. Uh, yeah, Brody had to go home, collect all my things, and that was the start of my hospital life. Yeah. Wow. So it is straight from from meeting to hospital bed, where yeah. you're going to spend a bit of time until this transplant happens. Yeah, literally just walked up upstairs. And that was my new life, you know, just in and out of hospital. How long did that period go for? It felt about two years. Um, but sort of going back through the dates, it, it was roughly, I think it was about three and a half months um, during that first sort of period po- uh, pre-transplant. 
Um, so over that three months, three to four months, I, you know, kind of walked upstairs. Um, and from that, from that moment, it was just rapid deterioration. I had all the symptoms of heart failure, obviously, um, you know, just massively fatigued, no appetite. I basically just wasted away. Um, and it was, it was pretty shocking, like, looking at yourself transition from, you know, a sort of a healthy young guy to, you know, something that you just don't even recognise. Um, I, I sort of, there was points where I just didn't want to, I, I didn't want to see people. I didn't want people to see me like this um, because I just, I almost couldn't recognise myself. You know, it was, it was a bit, a bit sort of mentally um, challenging trying to, um, you know, kind of look at yourself in the mirror and, and, connect with that person did it did it feel like the reflection wasn't you due to how quickly you changed physically 100%, yeah. yeah i mean i i lost i think it was about 25 kilos so um you know i was in three and a half four months yeah it was wow. um i think i sort of weighed sort of early early 80s um and look i've seen photos of you from pre-transplant like it's not like you're a big boy who had 25 to spare i mean no, definitely you know, not, no. you're like i don't know six one six two eighty odd kilos yeah you're in good nick yeah and um you know by the end of it by the transplant i was you know kind of low 50s and wow. it was it was scary like i i yeah like i said i just didn't recognize myself it was it was just it was like looking in a mirror and just not knowing who was staring back you mentioned that that three to four months felt like it was two years. Yeah. Was that just due to the fact that the days dragged or was it an impact of your health deteriorating at the at the time? What, what was that period like just day to day living out of a hospital bed? It was, I guess, a bit of both. It was sort of a little bit of Groundhog Day, I guess. Um, you know, you had your routines. You would, you'd wake up at five o'clock, you'd get weighed, you know, you'd, You'd do bloods, um, you'd be served breakfast at sort of 6.30 and, you know, then your day begins. And it just, in my situation, it was test after test and it was it was just survival mode, you know. You kind of just, you jump into that mode where you, like I was pretty positive the entire time um, and I, I feel like I did everything I possibly could physically to keep myself you know kind of active and but you, you you're fighting it's an un, uh, uphill battle like you're you're so fatigued you're so worn down you pump full of meds your body's wasting away and you know just walking was was so hard i had to challenge myself the doctors were challenging me the physio was challenging me like you know or out walk 10 meters walk 12 meters walk 15 meters and I would always try and beat what they would ask me to do every time. And I did majority of the time, but it just, it takes its toll. Yeah. And, you know, when you're, when you're constantly just deteriorating, yeah, it's, it's hard. Like it's, unless you're in that situation, it's, it's really hard to try and understand what it's like when you're just so exhausted all the time. Yeah, was it almost like your mind didn't understand where your body was at because of how quickly things were, were going on. Yeah, and I guess like a lot of it is, um, you know, 
sleep deprivation as well. So I was getting observations every hour throughout the night um, and you just don't get any sleep. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really hard keeping sort of mentally active as well as physically active when you're just so exhausted. So I think, um, you know, the nurses and doctors were like, you know, super kind. They would allow me a few hours during the day where they'd sort of block out visiting times. You know, they weren't allowed so I could just get a few hours sleep. You mentioned that you didn't want your mates and your family to see you because of, you know, the condition that you were in. But how did how did they react with all of this going on and just with the speed of it as well? It, it just came on so quickly. Yeah, I oh mean, I had such amazing support. Like my, my friends, my family, they all just, they're all there for me. Um, and, you know, they were just so kind, so loving, so supportive. Um, and to be honest, like, I think with those people close to me, um, you know, like, they kept me going. Like, that's what kept me. That's what that's what drove me to survive this, to, to you know, make it through. Um, because, you know, I had, I had people there in my corner. So I had to... I had to do it for them as much as myself. How do you get a new heart? Well, it's it's quite a complex um, procedure, I guess. So you have a workup, um, which in my situation kind of it went for you know weeks on end, um, psych evaluations, all that sort of stuff, uh, making sure you're fit to go on the donor list. Um, obviously, you you can't be a smoker. Um, you obviously can't take drugs. You've got to be as healthy as possible. Um, so you got to prove that this isn't going to go to waste. That you're in a condition that if you get it, you're going to be able to maximize the value of it. You know exactly. Yeah. Putting it coldly, but yeah. No, hundred percent. Um, and that's that's it. I mean, you know, you you've got to be healthy. You've got to do everything within your power, um, in order to give this the best best shot possible. Um. You do the workup, you know, you go on the donor list. There's, I think there's up to, you know, 1,500 people on that list at, at one given time. Wow. And then it's about matching, you know. It's it's getting a really high percentage match, you know, and there's lots of different factors involved, um, you know, from blood type to organ size to age to a million other um, things. And it's a waiting game. You don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know anything about the donor uh, and you, you're essentially just, you're on a list waiting. So it's not a case of one heart fits all? Not at all, no. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's quite a yeah complex process and, um, you know, some people are on the list for three days, some people are on the list for 12 months so wow. or longer. You and, know, and do they tell you that up, up front? I imagine that's a difficult thing to, to grasp because... You, you can't see the finish line. There's no way of knowing when the finish line is. Well, that's it, yeah. And, um, you know, it's kind of weird. You sort of see it on movies and, you know, people are just they're waiting for this phone call, you know, and that's, that's, that's what it's like. Like I was, I think I was on the list for about two months uh, pre-transplant and, yeah, it's, it's not a fun ride. Like you, you don't know when it's going to happen fear starts to set in you're trying to keep positive um but it's it's hard yeah could you try and not think about it i tried not to think about it and i tried to focus on other things i tried to um you know 
distract myself, I guess, as best as possible. Um, but for me, it was all about just staying positive. You know, it was kind of like I just I said to myself that I was going to beat this and I stayed true to that. You know, I just had to – anytime I would sort of feel a bit down or, um, you know, feel a bit off, I would – I just remind myself that there's people relying on me. There's people that have got my back. Like I need to get through this um, and I'm going to do everything in my power to basically survive this. So you talked about when you found out you needed the, the heart transplant. Yep. Were you told then about the lung transplant or was that something that came later? No, that definitely came later. So, right. I mean, obviously there was a, a pretty big shock factor with the you will need a heart transplant. Then basically what happened was... I think it was roughly about a month into my, uh, you know, holiday out, holiday out hospital where I was then told that I would need a heart and lung transplant, which basically just elevated the situation. At no point did I ever think that that would be the case. Um, it hadn't even... I, had, I hadn't factored that into what was happening or the situation. So it sort of came out of left field. Um and it was it was a bit of a shock. So it was just like, oh shit! Like this is this is real. Like this is this just got a lot more complex. Did it dent your confidence? Did it dent your your, your motivation and, and drive? Because it was well, here's another thing whacked on top. A little bit, but it also was also a little bit of a, a challenge as well. It was kind of it just ignited that mental positivity. And just made me go. All right. Well, the stakes have been raised. Let's let's take this on. This might sound like a naive question when you're going through so much, but were there ways that you could distract yourself when you were in hospital, just waiting? Like any any silliness or any bits of fun that you could grasp onto to just stop you thinking about kind of the situation that you found yourself in? Yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, you you try and do. You find, you know, you find happiness in small moments. So for me it was, you know, there was kind of this windowsill in one of the rooms I was in that had this really beautiful morning light and I would kind of, you know, sunbake in that and that was, you know, just this nice little bit of pleasure and happiness that, um, you know, for that moment you could just forget about what was happening. And... Um, yeah, there was, you know, it's, I tried to distract myself with, you know, movies, um, you know, friends, obviously I had a lot of friends come and visit who would just, you know, um, yeah, just talk shit and take your mind off it. Was this pre-Netflix? Because if it was, it would have made it 10 times harder, Dwight. I think, I think Netflix was just starting to, to pop out. Yeah, I just, um, to pop off, I was, I was probably downloading a lot of movies at the time, um, <laughs> Yeah. Can forgive the illegal downloads, Maybe, I uh, reckon, given the scenario. That part, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, tried to, I tried to keep busy. Uh, I tried to, yeah, do a lot of physio um, and just, uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of visitors. I had my wife in there morning and night. Um, she was absolutely amazing. And yeah, so I, I did, I was surrounded by a lot of people and I think that's what distracted me and, and that's what got me through it was like seeing people, seeing, getting, you know, living off those positive vibes that people would give me um, and, you know, that kept me going. Do you remember when you found out that there was a donor? 
Yeah. So I, I'd been in hospital for, for quite some time um, and I, I was just – I was absolutely wrecked. I wasn't sleeping. You know, I could kind of barely walk. I was, I was pretty deteriorated. I was in a good space. Um, but I was allowed home for a weekend just to, to get some proper rest. Um, and I was actually heading back into the hospital one morning and I, I, yeah, I was in the shower and basically it just, you know, almost collapsed. Got back to the, the bedroom, kind of collapsed again. Got rushed back to hospital, um, spent the night there um, and that next morning I knew I was in bad shape. Like I, I just, it had sort of hit me. Like I was, I, I kind of, I knew I was getting close um, and it was probably the first time where I, I guess, had admitted it to myself that. Close to. Close to not making it. Um, yeah, there wasn't much left in the tank. I, I was, yeah, I wasn't in a good shape. I was pretty much in bed, just, um, you know, kind of waiting for the curtains basically. Um, and one of the doctors came in, you know, normal procedure, weights, blood, breakfast. The team, heart team would usually sort of come around about 9am one of the doctors came in a little bit earlier, which I thought was a little bit weird. Um, general chit-chat, you know, talking about the traffic, the driving, the weather. Um, and then she just, in conversation, mentioned they think they had a donor. Oh, wow. Just a casual little drop-in. Just yeah. a drop-in, yeah. Just a casual drop-in. Um, and it kind of took a couple of seconds to register. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was kind of in a bit of shock. I just, I didn't know how to react and I, I don't, to be honest, I don't even remember how I reacted. Um, but what you got to remember is you can literally get on the table to have the transplant and then be pulled back. So nothing is 100% locked in until it's happened. Wow. Um, so there is, you know, there is also that in the back of your mind. So what we were told is don't tell anyone, um, don't tell your parents, your friends, we need to do, you know, some more testing uh, and we need to essentially just make sure that it's 100% match um, and that it's all going to be okay. It's almost like you've been told you, you've won the lotto but they just need to double check the last number. 100%, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. It's um, so weirdest day of my life, you know. You, you kind of, you sit there, uh, my wife Brody was with me and we were just we're in shock, you know, it was like, it was finally happening, the inevitable was happening, um, and it couldn't have come any later, you know, it was, it was like, it was at that time where, yeah, it was, it was fucking close, so. And you're aware of that, do you, do you feel like if it didn't happen that, that day that, that might have been it? There definitely wasn't much left, yeah, there wasn't much left in the tank, I was running on empty, I, yeah, I was I was kind of hitting a point where I was, um, yeah, really starting to internally think, um, what if I don't get this transplant? Um, That's a scary place to get to. It is, yeah, and I, I think up until that point, I just I was I just tried to remain as positive as possible. 
Um, and I, I didn't allow myself to think that way, um, purely from a, a mental state, um, not, not jumping into that hole, you know. So I was super positive. I was keeping, you know, mentally positive, um, doing every, everything I could physically, um, doing everything the doctors asked me to do. Uh, and, yeah, but that does start to creep in, especially you know, towards those, <coughs> those, um, those later days for sure. So this doctor comes in a little early and after talking about the morning traffic just casually drops that, hey, we might have a donor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at this really crucial time where you're, you're really battling to, to hang on to life. Yeah. How quickly did things progress from there and when did you find out that this was a go? So it was an extremely slow day. Um, it was just me and my wife in the room um, for hours on end. We couldn't tell anyone um, just in case it didn't happen. So I think it got, oh, I think it was roughly about 1 p.m. Um, you know, we had, obviously a lot was going on in the background, um, but we were essentially just sitting in a room waiting, um, not knowing if it was going to go ahead. So I guess mentally preparing for that, you sort of, you, you, you kind of don't want to get too ahead of yourself. So almost playing it down in your mind a little bit. Uh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, you know, we, we knew stuff was progressing. So it was, there was a good sign that, that it was going to go forward. Um, and then I think it was about 1 o'clock, 1 p.m., about five nurses came running into the room basically ripped off my shirt, started shaving my chest, and it was go time. Wow. Yeah, pretty crazy. It was mental. It was just in a split second, it went from sitting around for hours, you know, to just like, let's go. Zero to 100. Yeah, and it was, I think I had about five minutes to call my parents. Oh, wow. Um, at that point, still couldn't tell any friends, um, obviously couldn't post it on social media, um, any of that. No so pre-op selfie, what's going on? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I did sneak one in, yeah. I did a little <laughs> shakas in there somewhere. So, um, yeah, now I got that in. It was time for that. And so you just rushed into surgery at that point? Yeah, so wheeled through some corridors um, on the way to theatre, uh, down this long corridor. I was just with my wife um, and they kind of stopped mid-corridor and basically told Brody that she couldn't come any further. Um, so we, you know, we had to sort of say our goodbyes in a bit of a weird way. So, yeah, the nurses kind of turned around in a weird semicircle and sort of faced the wall while we, <laughs> we had a bit of privacy. Um, what did you say? I think it, you know, just like, I love you, it's all good see you on the other side. Yeah. Something like that, you know, it was, and we just, you know, we just hugged and. I suppose at that point, you, there's not really much more else to say. You've, you've lived this experience side by side together for so long. That's it. I mean, sh what I experienced, she was, you know, she was there morning, night, all the time. Like she, was a doctor during that period. The the doctors called her Doctor Doctor Brody. Like she was so in tune with what was happening, um, knew all the meds I was on, all the procedures I was having. 
absolutely everything and she was my rock like she she literally kept me alive um and yeah i i I owe her everything you say i'll see you soon you wheeled away yeah and then is it just lights out and the next thing you remember is is waking up post-surgery yeah so you kind of interfered her Lying this freezing cold steel table, you can still feel um, it, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, it's still got that that chill down my spine, um, and you just start getting plugged with needles and you know, like all that sort of stuff, like UV drops and and whatnot. And um, yeah, so they do a bit of a countdown. They sort of, you know, obviously they talk you through what's going to happen, um, but there's people everywhere. You know, you're in the theatre room. There's ten or so people running around. It's pretty crazy. I feel like I was pretty calm at the time. Um, I knew I was going to have something that was going to change my life. Um, So I was like, let's go. Let's do this. Like, let's let's get it over with. Let's let's start again. You know, let's reset. Hit the reset button. And, um, yeah, so I got plugged in and before I know it, the, um, the gas was coming down and count back from 100 yeah right so do you remember waking up post transplant yeah yeah so i i was in i was sort of in and out of consciousness for about i think it was about three or four days um and you wake up and i had it wasn't comfortable i had you know tubes down my throat oxygen in my nose five tubes in my stomach catheters like the works i couldn't move i was just yeah i've seen photos of 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 when i woke up and it's it's just it it's crazy um and you know you kind of woke up like i kind of woke up and you're massively disorientated you don't know where you are you don't know what's happened you're high you're high on painkillers um, and you're trying to work out what's happened and you've got people coming up to you, talking to you. You can't reply because you, you know, you're, you've essentially got a feeding tube down your throat. So you couldn't speak? No, I was trying to do sign language. <laughs> I don't know how to do sign language. <laughs> so, and then, you know, that sort of um, progressed to writing stuff on pads Um but we've still got the paper, actually. It made no sense. Like, I was drawing stuff. I was trying to write stuff. I just, in my mind, I thought I was doing a really good job. Yeah. But reality was, I wasn't at all. Um, and then, yeah, kind of a couple of days later, uh, you know, tubes start coming out. You're able to speak again. You can, you, you're a bit more sort of um, conscious of what's going on. Um but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't think I had had the transplant when I woke up. Oh, really? So you were that disorientated with everything that that happened, and obviously the speed of it as well. That you were, you were convinced that you hadn't had the the surgery. Yeah. So basically, what had happened was, in and out of consciousness, I'd picked up conversations from nurses and people that had sort of ventured into the room, and I'd almost like got these snippets of information and put them together in my head and created this narrative that didn't exist. Wow. And I believed it. I'd, I'd thought that 
I was going to New Zealand to get a transplant and the, the organs were coming from South Australia and I was just, I was absolutely convinced I hadn't had the transplant. That's wild. So you would have been rather panicked, I imagine, thinking that and unable to, to communicate properly. Exactly. Yeah, so I couldn't talk. I couldn't sign language. I was trying to write down on a pad to my wife and I wrote the question, have I had the transplant? And she looked at me like I was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, look down. Can you see that scar? Like it's, it's happened. So, yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I probably could have just looked down and realised there was, you know, a massive scar down the centre of my body. Um, but, hey, you, you don't kind of, you don't think that way when you're high on meds, so. Yeah, it's a bit going on. Yeah, you can probably cut yeah, yourself Yeah, had a bit going on, so it's, yeah, it's, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, how big is that scar? It's pretty solid. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it sort of goes from my, I guess, in line with my collarbone down to almost my belly button. Wow. Um, and then I've sort of got five holes where the tubes went in. Um, then I've also got a scar down the side along my ribs, which is where I had a pacemaker installed uh, pre-transplant. Sorry, a, a, D, a defib right. pacemaker. So what's what's the road to recovery like from, from that point? Is this almost when kind of the battle begins in a way? It's almost like round two. Right. So it's it's like, all right, you've got through the first round. You slogged it out. You made it through. Let's reset. Let's start again. Um, you know, I sort of mentioned I was massively de- just deteriorated. I, you know, I weighed next to nothing. I, I just my muscle mass was completely depleted. I couldn't walk. I had to learn to walk again. Um, and it's just step by step. You know, it's it's like you start by standing up, getting off the bed. And then each day it was like, let's walk five metres, let's walk 10 metres, let's walk 15 metres. And you just build it up. And you just, you take it day by day and you just, every day you try a little bit harder. And I, I had this sort of goal with my um, physio where she wrote this plan and it was like, all right, in two weeks you need to be able to do this, this and this. I think I smashed it in about five days. Massive. I was just like, all right, had the transplant, it's go time. Like I need to I need to do whatever I can to build this muscle back to get back to normality. It's like the Kobe of the transplant world. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> you know, get that get that mumba power. <laughs> <laughs> so how long how long are you in hospital for after the, the transplant or even in that point where you're regularly having to, to be there for this? So post-transplant, I had a goal to get out by my birthday, um, which I think was a, was roughly about a month post-transplant. Wow. Which is really quick. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and I mean, obviously, the doctors, they want you to get back home. They want you to get back into your own environment, start living life again. Obviously, you're doing checkups every two, three days, every week, all that sort of stuff. But they don't want you in hospital. Um, so 
it was, uh, I think it was roughly about three weeks post-transplant, I was back home. Um, I was very much recovering. Like, I was, I was really weak. I was, you know, I had my sister sort of flew back from overseas um, to help look after me and my wife was there. Um, you know, I had a lot of support uh, that, that just, that literally just, you know, helped me recover. And it's bit by bit, right? You've got you've got programs and things like that, but yeah. you've come from such a depleted state that you need to to build it up over time. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's you know it's as I said a little bit. It's you're in survival mode. You you kind of you you just do a little bit more every day, um, and you know I was going to the gym at the hospital every I think it was every two days. Um, so I had a bit of a a program there that I was working to. Um, and you just try and do whatever you can to, to get better, essentially. You mentioned you're on some pretty heavy meds when, yeah. you, <laughs> when you're in, <laughs> in hospital. Um, yep. What was the, the impact of those day to day? How did they change you and make you feel while you're going through this period? Yeah, so I guess the, uh, the biggest thing was post-transplant high on pain meds, um, you know, kind of, I had been warned that some people hallucinate. Right. I'm a pretty creative person. So I woke up and I had a little, a little, a little button that I could, I think it was morphine at the time or I could hit for morphine. You could kind of self-medicate a little bit. Basically, yeah. Which I wasn't actually doing. I don't know why, but they had, they kept on telling me to push the button because I was in a lot of pain. I was like, oh yeah, shit, like this can relieve some of this pain. I should probably do this. But basically, um... Yes, I saw some wild shit. Like there was, <laughs> you know, there was a flaming devil in the corner at one point. There was scorpions running up the walls. There were spiders on the roof. Um, and I just, because I'd been pre-warned, I sort of, it didn't worry me. I, I just, I took it on and I was like, shit, this is crazy. Like what else can I think of? Didn't freak you out? No, I didn't. Like just, I don't know why, yeah. You just kept pushing the button. I mean, it was essentially a nightmare, but I was, <laughs> I was, Come and collect it. What am I going to say next? Get me that button. Well, that's it. Yeah, hit the morphine. Let's go. You spent a lot of time in the hospital and imagine not even the time, but you would have been so close with the the doctors and the nurses and the physios and everyone that was trying to help you get yeah. better, especially considering, you know, someone so young going through this, which would have been, I assume, quite different. Yeah, definitely. How do you reflect back on, on them and what was the, the relationship like? Man, amazing. Like, the the nurses and doctors that I had looking after me, like, the nurses especially need to get paid more money. Like, it's the things that they did, um, the support I had, uh, you know, uh, just, yeah, they just, they do such an amazing job. Um, and, you know, they literally kept me alive. Um, so... Yeah, couldn't speak any more highly of um, the nurses and doctors that that sort of looked after me, and you know, sort of through that, like I've I've kind of formed you know some great relationships with um, you know my team, and you know I, I see the see a few familiar faces going down the hallways, and you know say hi and stop and have a chat and stuff, and it's you know it's it's awesome. I know that you go back and and speak to um, not only you know med students, but also. Uh, the few young people that maybe are about to go through 
what you did? What, why is yeah. that something that has been important to you? Why did you want to do it? I think it was just, it was a way to give back. Um, and it's something, you know, being a young person going through that experience, I, I wish I had somebody that, you know, gave me the lowdown on what you're about to go through. Yeah. Um, so for me, yeah, speaking with unis, with hospitals, with ICU staff, um, with, you know, other younger crew in the clinic, um, it's just a way that I can... I can I can just give a little bit of knowledge and a bit of insight into, you know, what's what's coming and just, you know, t- tell them things that that worked for me um, that didn't work for me, um, but also just it's a way for people to understand what you go through as well, um, and yeah, like this, like had some crazy reactions, especially um. You know, I did a chat to some, I think it was some third-year med students at Curtin and um, they weren't much weren't much younger than me and they were just, you know, I kind of finished my finished my presentation and at the end of them they all stayed and they wanted to ask questions and they had classes afterwards and they would just skip their class um, because they were just so interested and, um, you know, intrigued by, by sort of what I'd gone for a year. Did you ever find out anything about the donor? No. So there's a very strict um, policy about the donors. Um, of you know, for for security reasons, um, you're you're basically not told any information. Um, and yeah, so you you kind of you, you just never know. Um, so it's hard to attach a connection I guess because you don't have a person that you can attach it to was it tough to grasp not knowing who it came from or, or was that something that you were like I respect what that is and I'm just grateful and now I'm gonna you know for use of a better phrase like leave live my best life because of it yeah it's it's I mean it's very surreal it's it's a, it's a tragic situation for someone and someone's family um, that then leads into something that saves another person's life. It's so hard to unpack. Like, how do you sort of? It's hard to navigate. It's um, it's one of those things where I just, I'm just eternally grateful. Um, and I sort of see it as it's a second chance for me, and I need to do everything I can to just honour that that person. What did they do with your organs? Less important question, right? Because <laughs> let's be honest, they're on the way Good out. Question. But, Good but question. do you ever know? I, I feel I feel like I have asked this question, but I feel like maybe they went to like science, right? To, so they're not to the lab. They're not in a jar in your room or something like no, the that. They're, they're definitely not above the uh, you know the the coffee table or anything. So yeah, I used no. to have dreadlocks, and they're in a bag under. Yeah, my definitely bed don't. My mum's I definitely house, don't so. have my heart in a bag under my bed. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. Um, uh, did the doctors ever tell? I know they said that you had heart failure, but did you ever learn about what kicked this off? And I know there was when you were younger, you had some issues with your heart, but it had been yeah. you know well over a decade since that had even been a thing. You go on this camping trip, yeah, you get rained on and catch a cold. Did yeah. you ever find out the root cause? My heart just died. Um, there was, you know, there was complications due to my existing condition where, um, you know, my, my chambers were basically reversed. So 
it was causing a lot of strain on, well, I guess like both sides of the chambers. Um, but basically what happened was it just blew out, um, you know, to keep the medical terms out of it. Um, and it, it essentially just failed. Um, and then what happened was that led to the rest of my body just kind of closing, you know, shutting down as well um, because it just couldn't, couldn't keep up. You've recently uh, hit five years. Yeah. Since your transplant. Yep. Why is that such a, a special and important marker point? Well, I guess you kind of, you know, I was sort of told that you've got one year, three year, five year, you know, sort of marker points. And um, five year is usually you're in the clear to an extent. Um and that's a pretty significant marker point. So, to you know, to hit that five-year mark, it's it's a little bit of relief. Um, yeah, I kind of use the analogy like I've I've crawled out of a hole, a dark hole, and I've just hit the sunlight, and I've crawled out, and now it's sunshine. That's interesting because earlier you talked about survival mode, and you're yeah. in survival mode for for so long. Do you feel like that's switched now? I do, yeah. I, I, I sort of feel like the first, especially the first year, was really hard. I was in and out of hospital constantly um, for various things. Uh, it was really hard to try and get fit and healthy again when you, you're you back in hospital for two, three weeks. You get out, you go back to the gym, you build a bit of muscle, you're back in hospital. So it was like this cycle. It was a... And it was hard to sort of push through. So by about year three, I think I'd, I I started to see the light a little bit. And it's like, yeah, you know, like I mentioned, like crawling out of this dark tunnel and, you know, you, you start to see the light and things start to get better. You start to feel healthier. The fog starts to, to settle a little bit and you can, you can start to sort of get back to normality, focus, work out what's important. Um, and just kind of start to move forward. Uh, you mentioned to me the other week that you were down south and yeah. you jumped into the ocean for the first time yeah. since this all happened. Now, there's some obvious reasons about why you've probably kept out of the, the ocean you know, yeah. with your health and stuff like that. But yeah. um, what did that feel like to have your first swim in, in five years? It was amazing. The last time I went in the ocean was pre-transplant, I think I was, I, I don't think I'd been admitted to a hospital just yet, but I remember swim, swimming, I was, I was just starting to kind of deteriorate, get weaker, and I remember it was a pretty choppy day, and I got thrown around a bit, and I was like, man, I'm weak, like I need to get out, like I'm going to drown, and I'm a pretty good swimmer, and I was just like, all right, Let's cut this. Like, I need to... Um, this is not cool. So I hadn't swam in the ocean from that point. And um, fast forward five years, we're down south. And I jumped in and it was like this cleansing moment. I just... You know, it sounds super generic, but, you know, the, the water almost just washed over me and just cleansed me of the last five years of just shit and it just felt really fucking good it's pretty big 
Yeah, just um, I mean, I think it was like a mental thing as well. I think it was yeah. just like I I was allowing myself to shed myself of of what had happened, um, and it's it's almost like I had hit this point where I'm like, all right, now you need to start living again, um, and it was a good feeling. Do you feel like you you're back now? And I know I sit across the desk from you, yeah. so I see your routine. In the mornings, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of meds to take in. There is, yeah. There's there's I call it my uh my breakfast. So yeah, that I call you the pelican. You know, yeah, uh, you do. Yeah, I'm, I Thanks hope you're that. not offended by that. But Harley, <laughs> are you really? Ah, cool. Oh, cool. I'm like I say that every day. Um, you know, but as you as you try to do, you you try and find you know some some kind of humor and fun where you can. But yeah, I, I could say the pelican because you have to take that many pills and they're so hard to get down. So there's yeah. obviously you know, some long-standing things here as well in terms of meds and, and your health going forward forever? Yeah, so, I mean, it's not like you have the transplant, you do the rehab, you walk again, you're, it's gravy. It's not that at all. It's, you know, I, I think I'm on about 26 pills a day. Wow. Um, and it comes with side effects, you know, and that's just, that's part of life. Like, that's part, of, that's the new normal. Um, but you know, the alternative is a lot worse. So, <laughs> you know, you can't take of, it, you take it exactly. So, um, you know, you kind of just, I mean, I've got my technique for swallowing the pills, the Pelican. Yeah. Um, and you know, sometimes I try and do too many at once and, you know, a puff of uh, powder comes out of my nose, but you know, <laughs> that's all good. It's part of the process. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's part of life. It's, you know, immunosuppressants, pro, um, you know, steroids uh you know there's a million other meds that i take for various reasons um and you know they keep me alive so it's all good yeah i want to talk a little bit about um gauge and your work there too because there is yeah. a bit of crossover right because yeah for sure you, you, you'd started not too long at gauge before all of this happened it was i think it was roughly my time. yeah it was about 12 months i'd been at gauge yeah so you, you you've been for a long time, obviously, really close to, to the design and yeah. to the look of, of Gage, if you put it yeah. you know, simply. Um, you're the creative manager. So almost like everything that we see that is Gage Rhodes has kind of come through you in a sense. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. What, what is it that you love about that world? What do you love about design and, and bringing you know, a brewery, a brand to life visually? I guess to break it down to its similar, simplest form, it's, you know, it's beer and design. Like, it's a, it's a pretty fucking cool job. Like, it's, it's a pretty hard one to beat, you know. So it's, it's um, but it's, yeah, it's all about building brands that I enjoy, that I want to be a part of, I want to connect with, um, that I think are cool. Um, and, yeah, I think we've, we've done a really good job with Gage. I think it's, you know, when I started, there was there was two of us in marketing shout out cambo <laughs> um and you know we we did it all like we we built it up from the ground and we we essentially just did what we thought was cool it's it's been a bit of a crazy ride since those early days and you know from those early days we've obviously added a lot more pieces to the puzzle um a lot of highly talented people um and grown massively yeah so were you there pre-fin days or just as kind of single fin was becoming a thing? Single fin was called South Beach at the time. 
And I think I just started during the refresh of Single Fin. Right. Um, so you were kind of creating that look for what we now know as Single Fin. And obviously it's had a you know a few little tweaks along the journey, but that was the Yeah, the I mean it's it's definitely kind of like evolved, but I guess the the crusts of it have stayed the same. Um you know the the architecture is is somewhat the same of you know that refresh from six years ago now um and still going strong so um yeah where did that inspo come from because there's you know there's the box set which is iconically gauge roads uh, but yeah. there's also you know the the different scenes so you know single fin's got that take on cot beach other beers have you know a different a different take where did that inspo come from so i guess originally the the concept was to base the packaging around iconic uh, locations and landmarks. Um, the box structure itself, funnily enough, was taken from A Shed, which is um, our yeah. soon-to-be new brewery and venue. Exactly. Yeah. But this so was well before that was a thing. This is going back six, seven years. Yeah. Wow. Um, so pretty insane that that space is now ours. Because you don't, you do look at those sheds down in Frio, and each shed is a letter, and yeah. the letter is prominent inside a box. Exactly. Yeah. So that so, was the inspo. Yeah. So that architecture basically was pulled straight from from those docks there, from a shed, um, and placed into yeah the packaging design, and that formed the the name um, structure for the for the packaging. How hard is it to design a beer can? Or a look at a design for, for a particular beer? Like how much goes into it? It's hard. I mean, it, it, it starts at the concept stage. So just working out what this thing is, working out a bit of a strategy. Um, and, you know, sometimes it hits straight away. Other times I'll move shit around for weeks. Um, and, you know, like it, I think for me it's, it's about finding inspiration and starting on a good base level and then building from that. And then along the, you know, sort of through the design process, things will arise and it will sort of, you know, you will sort of pivot and you will, you will change stuff and it will adapt and evolve. But I think essentially having that, that good base idea and concept um, usually means you're going to have a good design by the end. Uh, I've been really loving the the limited releases, and I think yeah, if nice. you look at say like the last uh, maybe four or five, and I'm yeah. no designer, I'm not in the design <laughs> team. Um, thankfully, um, they've progressed and yeah. they've become uh, maybe more intricate and detailed with each one. Yeah have you have you enjoyed the the evolution, I suppose, of the the look of the gauge limited releases? Yeah, definitely. I, I sort of feel like it's a space where I can. I can put a bit of personality in. Um, you know, I'm a very, I'm a bit of a minimalist, so that that sort of space started very minimal, um, and then it sort of evolved with the illustrations. Um, you know, different different styles of typeface. You know, going back more into a sort of '70s style surf vibe. Um, you know, playing with some more challenging palettes, stuff like that. Uh, and it's it's been a good evolution. It's been fun, um, and it sort of allows me to do something which I don't do very often, which is illustrate. And it just, I enjoy doing it. It's cool. Yeah, Party Wave, the last, the last one, 
I thought was awesome. And before that, I don't know if you're going to top this one. You will. <laughs> um, but Dawn Patrol. Yeah. With the Landy. Very popular. Yeah. I mean, it. it's kind of like I'm, I'm slowly just designing my personality. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm taking things I like, somehow working them into a beer style design and uh, somehow getting it approved. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> the secret to your success. I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about photography too because yeah. you know that's something that you're massively into as well as design. But, but where did this, I don't know, where, where did this creative uh, interest come for you? Have you always had it or is it something that you, you worked on growing up? Bit of both, I guess. I mean, I've, I've always sort of shot around from, you know, sort of my early 20s, travelling, all that sort of stuff. I've always had a, a camera on hand. Uh, and I guess it's just evolved into it's now sort of part of my job. Um, you know, I don't, I don't take as many, uh, I guess, personal shots of which I, I wish I did. Um, you know, I'd love to sort of just walk around with a, you know, little street camera on me 24-7 um, and I probably should start doing that. Because uh, I just love it, you know. It's 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 something where I can be creative, um, and you know, just create something from moments, and 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 just um, you know, kind of yeah, pluck moments from from your everyday life. What's the and it's you know not necessarily a gauge shot, but what's the photo you've taken that means the most to you? Oh, question without good, notice. Good question. I'm gonna crack a beer while you try and answer that one because that's Go a tough gold. question. I've got a photo that I didn't take, but was taken on my camera of me. If ah. that can, if that can play, yeah, that works. Basically, it was um, a shot of uh, on top of Mount Fuji. Um, I got this Japanese dude, and kind of you know just yet yeah, asked him to take a photo while I was up there. Obviously, um, you know selfies on top of a mountain don't really showcase uh, what you're doing. <laughs> so um, yeah, got him to take a photo of me you know, basically just standing on top of the mountain and it was just this massive dr- backdrop. It was about 4 a.m. So it was, you know, dark blue, moody skies. Um, and it's just a moment in my life that I sort of look back and I'm like, I achieved that. And I did it by myself. You know, I, I, it was something that I, I really wanted to do and I put my mind to it and I did it. And it was something that I'm really proud of. And... um yeah, it's kind of just a moment where I can sort of cherish, I guess. You can chuck a bit of context around that too with everything that, that followed, you know, a year exactly. or so after, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I want to finish up by asking you about the last six years, but what have you learned about yourself through everything that you've gone through? So I think it's it's all about just living in the moment um surround yourself with good people do what you love um and you know not to sound cliche but take a risk um you know because in an instant your life can change um as i know uh so it's it's made me kind of just be a bit more aware and a bit more present um and it's something that I'm, I'm com- constantly working on, something that I need to better myself at. Uh, but just kind of reminding myself that shit can happen. You know, you've got you've to basically be present and you've got to live your life 
as best you can and do the things that you love because in a moment's notice that can just disappear. Yeah, it's pretty good advice for all of us. Thanks so much for sitting down and having a chat. It's been, uh, as I said, I've, I've heard bits and pieces of this story when we've been at the desk or, you know, maybe having a few beers yeah. um, late night, but it's been, it's been really cool to sit down and hear it firsthand. And yeah, I myself are very grateful that it turned out the way it did because you're one of my favourite people and I love hanging Thanks, out man. with you. Cheers. That's Living the Dream by Gage Rhodes. Gage is an indie brewer just out of Frio in WA that's all about going after it and having an epic time with a few brews. Check them out at gageroads.com.au. Thanks again for having a listen. Subscribe so you don't miss an app. Share it with your mates. Chuck us a rating. And get in touch if there's someone you want to hear from on the potty. I'm Jamie Burnett. Cheers.